Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your weekend is not complete without the first lady of New York radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Joan Hamburg and welcome to our show. Uh, You know that we do this every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. And... You and I share so many things. What's going on? What health news, guests, people that you would love to hear. And we have a great time. And this is a crazy time, as you know. Friday was the first night of Passover. Why is this night different from all other nights? Because so many of our guests at the last minute tested positive positive for COVID, and that's what makes it different. And are we ever going to see the end of this? I I can't answer that, but we have to learn to live with it. And I'm telling you guys, don't poo-poo the mask mandate because it's the only real protection. Of course, vaccines and boosters are essential, but the mask too is very helpful. And wherever we go where there are people who aren't wearing masks, trouble follows. So just a little a little warning on a day that we want to really look ahead. And both holidays, Passover and Easter, signify new beginnings. So it's important to try to be optimistic. And, oh, a lot of things were going on. Theater, as many shows that are closing temporarily because of COVID are opening and you've got a lot of things to choose from. Take Me Out, which we talked about, part of Second Stage, a really terrific show. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot and wonderfully done. So it's important. And I took my granddaughter, who's in New York from California, to see The Lion King at the Minskoff Theater, I cannot tell you how enthralled she was. She just loved it. And even though I have seen this show before, I was thrilled again. Disney does it so well. It was a great show. And take your family. Everyone is going to love that. We got the biggest kick out of it. And there are so many things now on Broadway, Billy Crystal's show is up and running. Birthday Candles with Deborah Messing is up and running. Come From Away is doing great. Dear Evan Hansen, you've just got a lot and a lot to choose from. Mrs. Doubtfire, and I read that Paradise Square, which came in recently, it wasn't even up one or two days when COVID spread through and they had to shut down, but apparently they're open again in six, a show that I know my family absolutely loved and Tina and Phantom of the Opera. So 
do take advantage. And Macbeth with Daniel Craig and Ruth Naga, they were shut temporarily for COVID and they're up and running again. And the minutes is up and the little prince just opened. So you know what? This could be a good time to go to theater. And you can stop in at our pals at Sardi's and admire all the caricatures which are up on the wall of practically every actor and actress in the city and enjoy and have one of Sardi's yummy desserts, yummy lunches, and feel like you're really part of the theater. And we have such an interesting show. Dr. Uh, not Dr. Haddaddy's Dr. Oz, but Daphne Oz, part of this family. Daphne has been doing food and entertainment for a long time now. She's a beautiful young woman with a large family of very young children, and she's got a new cookbook out. Really good. I showed it to my kids, and they thought it was terrific. So she's entertaining. You're going to enjoy her. We have a famous thriller writer who sells multi, multi millions of copies all over the world. And it's so interesting to hear all the things that he has. And this has been a very special time, a time filled with angst, but a time filled with the celebration of family and friends during these holidays, which are coming up. And many of you call asking questions about food and about recipes. We do celebrate Passover. We haven't done so in the last few years because of COVID and now COVID again, that we have so many family members who flew in from all over. COVID again is reared its head. So it's been a very hard time, but we serve a lot of traditional foods. We have gefilte fish, and we there's a lovely caterer from the Catered Word out of Staten Island, and she's all over the tri-state area. Her fish is just delicious, and we use her for that. I've got a huge turkey waiting to be cooked that we're doing, Cousin Nancy and her brisket. Her kids are coming in from all over. So Chicago, everywhere. We have family from California, from Washington, a special time. And we hope that we're going to entertain you on this Sunday, Easter Sunday, with a great show if you're home and you've got a chance to listen. There was a wonderful recipe in Wednesday's Times. It's a little late for it now, but for Easter, for a ham and um, with honey. Honey, and I think it was mustard. And that's the way, if you get a spiral ham, and that's really good. I always do, and you can do it with corned beef or any of those corned meats. You can do honey mustard, and or if you want a little maple syrup, mix it with a little orange marmalade and rub it all over. I made a leg of lamb like that too with um, mustard and apricot or peach preserves, a little soy sauce, and 
made a, a like a mixture of all that and rubbed it all over the lamb, pierced it with a fork so that the juices infiltrate. It was like the best leg of lamb you ever tasted. The problem is, like everything else, lamb is so expensive these days. But try it one day. It's a really good recipe. And I'm wishing all of you ahead of our show happy celebration, good health, goodwill, good luck for all these coming holidays and the coming year. I'm Joan Hamburg and The Joan Hamburg Show every Sunday at 2 o'clock and on Instagram, on Facebook, on two podcasts, not one. You be part of it. I'm so happy to welcome you. I'm Joan Hamburg. Much more ahead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And if you think that you're busy, I want you to meet Daphne Oz. And I know you've met Daphne. You know her family, her daddy, Dr. Oz, her mom, who is also a personality on television. All this, Everyone in this family is very accomplished. And Daphne, who is a mother of four, a new one, has a brand new book called Eat Your Heart Out. And I'm going to let Daphne tell you about that. In addition, she has a, a daytime talk show called Good Dish. She's a judge on MasterChef Junior, which is on Fox primetime. So you've been doing this since you were in college, you wrote books about how you, you know, I don't know anyone who didn't gain 10 pounds the first few months in college. <laughs> and you wrote a cookbook when you were just a kid with all of this. So tell me, life goes on. You are doing 90 things before breakfast. <laughs> well, thank you, Joe. Thank you for such a generous uh, introduction. I I do sometimes feel like I'm doing 90 things before breakfast, but sometimes that's because I'm eating breakfast at 2 p.m. <laughs> it's just the day gets busy. Um, yeah, no, I, I wrote my first book, The Dorm Room Diet, as you mentioned, when I was in college. And it was because I got a head start and had gained not just 15 pounds, but 40 pounds that I was carrying around um, by the time I graduated high school. And uh, I talk in the book a lot about how that's because I was very lucky to grow up in a huge family where, you know, so many food cultures intertwined and, and all of them at the core had that family dinner and, and family mealtime as such a, a core way to uh, to bond and to show each other love and to experiment and play and adventure in the kitchen. And, um, and so even though I was eating healthy food, it is clearly possible to overeat healthy food. And right. I found myself like uh, the overweight kid. Yeah, well, I loved it. I, lo I loved I mean, I'm the oldest child in my family and, and 
sort of always considered myself the seventh child in, of my mom's siblings because she had me quite young and, and I was lucky to get to grow up at my grandparents' farm so much of the time while my dad was in early medicine and first in residency and so on. But um, I... So I grew up at their elbows at the kitchen uh, counter trying to figure out and learn what they were doing and hear the gossip of the day and the whole thing. But um, but that love of food was so critical to me. And, and I found myself the overweight kid in, in a family full of health nuts. And so when I got to college, it was the first time that I felt that great freedom to establish a healthy lifestyle program that would really work for me at that stage of my life, which is, as you mentioned, a really a time when a lot of people go off the rails because it's their first time experiencing that freedom. And, and it's so easy to fall into what I started calling the danger zones of college, you know, the late night studying and the parties and the so on. And I wanted to have all those rich experiences, but I wanted to do it in a way that would also fuel me to get healthy, lose the extra weight I was carrying around and do it in a way that was actually practical for an 18 year old to try to do. So um, it was exciting. I'll tell you, it was really exciting I had to conquer and tackle a lot of fears. I was definitely a shy kid who was much more comfortable with adults than I was with peers. And imagine my uh, <laughs> my discomfort with having to talk about weight loss and the deep vulnerability of feeling just you know, like I like I had to get healthy um, in front of you know entire classrooms, entire panhellenic societies. I mean, just groups of people in my, you know, in my, my immediate peers. But what I found through that experience was even though the first couple of times it was nerve wracking and and terrifying um, to be that vulnerable and be that open about something I'd struggled with, what I, what I would look out in the audience and see were these light bulbs flashing off in people's brains of just like, Oh wow, that's actually really useful for me. I can do what she did. I can try this in my life and sort of, you could see that positive change happening. And that really, fueled me to, to something that now is commonplace. But I think back then when I wrote the book in 2004, I think it was maybe like 2005, um, that like being vulnerable and open with a group of people that you don't know, creates connection. It creates positive change in such a powerful way. And in such a sticky way that, that also really helped me create the lens and the platform through which I've, I've, you know, continued to, um, to, to be on television and write books and, and do the things that I love to do. Well, you know, it's interesting. You had and have a very strong support system. You had a mother and a grandmother who thought, you know, this child is the gift, as all their children were. But when you get that, even when there are little blips along the way, you can come through it on the other side. It's a kind of confidence. So you were eating not just to drown, you know, sorrows or things which kids do. You were eating because it was good and you liked it. <laughs> yes, that's true. I understand. I grew up many, many years before you in that kind of family. You know, food at the table was where everyone gathered to deal with life, with the days. And we ate constantly wonderful food. So you inherited that gift. Did you feel, Daphne, I'm talking to Daphne Oz, who's got a brand new book out called Eat Your Heart Out, and beautifully illustrated and terrific recipes. I'll let you know the secrets of that book in a minute. But did you feel pressured by all the accomplishments of your family? You were the first child. Do you feel that you had to really go and do and be? 
You know, I think it's something I think about a lot as a mother now um, is kids really internalize what they're told they have potential to be. And so I, I never felt like I was being pressured to succeed. I always felt like I was being pressured to try. I was being pressured to work. I was being pressured to live up to and, and take advantage of the immense opportunity and, um, and just, you know, a support system, as you mentioned, of having, uh, having a family who really believed in my potential. And I think that, and I also was very inspired by how, you know, what, what I saw the, the members of my family going after in their lives. And the, you know, something I remember, you know, early on was being told that, it, being the most talented or the most naturally gifted at something is never going to beat being the person who works the hardest. <laughs> I think that, yeah. And I think it's a very empowering statement because that is, that is something that um, in many ways you, you are much more in control of than what you're innately born with. And I think as a parent now, you know, uh, with, with my kids' school, I've been learning so much about a growth mindset. And this is something that I don't remember being explicitly praised in that way when I was a kid growing up, but I think about it all the time now, and it's valuable for adults as much as it is for kids. But the idea of, you know, external praise, like someone telling you they're so proud of you or someone telling you you did a good job, well, that's, first of all, not something you can't control their opinion of what you did and you can't control their, you know, what arbitrary things they're using to tally up against or for you. Um, and so it creates a, a weird paradigm because all of us as parents are so tempted to do that. You did such a good job. This is the best painting ever. You're so good at math. Like, you know, that's just something so ingrained in supportive parenting. But when you do that to kids, what I've been learning, uh, you know, certainly no expert in education, but I, but I, my ears are wide open to it because I really do. I want my kids to grow up with confidence. I want them to grow up with a desire to be of service and a desire to, um, to, to, to do great things, uh, you know, to, to really run after the things that interest them um, and be kind and all of it. And I want that to, and I, I know that that sometimes happens in the spaces where, we are not as parents stepping in to save them from everything or stepping in to mm -hmm. spare them from what can sometimes be painful moments, but ultimately help them craft this confidence and this self-sufficiency that is so valuable as they go into adulthood. And just to complete the thought on growth mindset, you can see my, the pregnancy brain is so real. But Daphne, are you saying that maybe we're putting too much heat on kids by telling them how brilliant they are, how successful Maybe that's too much. No, no, that it's actually just a change of your phrasing. It's not that you know you shouldn't want great things for your kids or hope that, hope that for them or tell them that you think they're capable of those things. It's that the way in which you phrase it, so that it's not about you being proud of them. It's not right. I'm it's so proud them. of you. It's how yeah, how do you feel in that experience? Like how, what you know, I'm so excited that you got to see when you worked really hard, look at what that created. You praising the effort, not the outcome is, you know, from the educators that I've been speaking with, that is so fundamental to creating in them a, a system for judging their own lives. That is about how it makes them feel, not about how other people perceive what they've chosen to do. And I think that is, you know, in this day and age, um, where where lots of your life is open to other people's interpretation of it, it's actually so empowering to have it have your kids grow up with a feeling of 
how, you know, what am I going to be proud of? What am I going to do that's, that's going to create positive change in my life? Um, so you had asked about if I felt pressure. I, the pressure I felt was, was, yeah, to fit in. I definitely wanted to work hard and, and see what my, what my limits were. Um, but I never felt pressure to, to, you know, do anything specific. It was really to, to explore my own interests. No, and that's really interesting because one of my kids, my son, always said to me, I felt a lot of pressure because you kept telling me how great I was, how gifted, a genius. He said, it was mm-hmm. a lot of heat. I felt it. That yeah. He said, you know, um, later I thought maybe I was lucky because that message got ingrained, you know, that I could do anything, but yeah. it was the wrong kind. You're saying something which um, could be a good op-ed too, but it really makes a difference how you deal with it and phrase it. You can still give them the gift of confidence, but you have to do it not about you, about them. Yeah, which is hard to do because it's easy to see our kids as extensions of us and we want good things for them. So we, and, and it's just, it's funny how the, the logic and the wisdom evolved because I think there was a time where, you know, being a super rallying parent was the, was what was ex- what, not just what was expected, what was hoped for. And it's so interesting, exactly as you said, a lot of kids, when they're, when they're told how naturally gifted they are, how exceptional they are, how great they are, it's a lot to live up to. And when you have, it, it also makes you terrified. If you are a hyper-performing kid, if you are a really you know, exceptional kid, you also want to perform. You don't want to lose that. It like rattles you so much, the idea that that could go away. And so what they've also found is that like if you if you give someone the label of oh you're great at math and then they hit a a problem as everyone does where they don't know the answer it's not an easy fix for them then they stop trying they stop they pull back because they Mm want to stay in the place where they're perfect at it and that actually stunts the growth that they could have it's just fascinating and the more you look it's the the more you know the more you know right (laughs) right no it's Um, interesting it's interesting yeah too how you decided early that food was where you were going to go or that world, you know, the good life, good health, good nutrition, because it could have been anything. Medical school, I gather, was not on your list. It very much was, actually. Funnily enough, so my my dad's a heart surgeon. My grandfather's a heart surgeon. My other grandfather was a pulmonary surgeon. Um, my uncle's a neurosurgeon, like every male in my family pretty much is a surgeon. And yeah. And, and then my mother and my grandmother are, are deeply involved in nutrition and, and complementary medicine and alternative care and things of that nature. And I, I loved, I loved that knowledge of the human body. I, I definitely thought I was heading into medicine so much so that I, I actually went to pre-medical post back after I graduated college. But, um, for a period of time, but I, I don't think I I knew at some point pretty early on that I didn't think the place I could be of most service or the place that I could reach the biggest number of people with the most useful information that could maybe prevent them ever having to get on the operating table was going to be through medicine. I, I really, I had this deep love of food always in my life. And I'd seen the positive change I'd been able to create in my life. I, this ending of that dorm room diet story is that I, created this healthy lifestyle program that really worked. I lost 40 pounds in the first two years of my college experience. And that was really the whole, um, the whole business. I, I had seen what 
eating good things for, for my body could do for my health overall. And so that was, um, you know, when I ultimately uh, got the job at the CHU and went back to culinary school and went, I'd been studying nutrition at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. It just felt like it's a really wonderful way to make health delicious and accessible and empower people with great recipes. I'm talking to Daphne Oz, and Daphne is a television host, a best-selling author, an entrepreneur. (laughs) She's got a brand new book out called Eat Your Heart Out, and the book has some very simple rules, and I'm going to let you, Daphne, explain. You talk about sugar, a couple of things that are eliminated for five days a week. Yes. So, okay, so while while I created a program that worked for me when I was 18 and 19 and 20 with the program diet, this book, Eat Your Heart Out, is really a reset program for people who love to eat. People like me. In other words, I felt like, you know, especially when you live for great bites and you love to enjoy life through food, as it sounds, Joan, like you grew up doing, it can be, it, I would argue people like us need a reset almost more than anybody else because the the indulgent moments, stop feeling so significant when they feel rote or, you know, without intention behind them or without any sense of like moderation or control around them. So it was to me, especially after having babies or after periods of a lot of stress or a lot of celebration, I felt like I wanted a quick way to get my health back on track, to get my body back on track, to feel like I was making great healthy choices again and resetting and and renewing that commitment in a way that would never rob me of having the delicious food experiences I wanted to have. So Eat Your Heart Out is 150 recipes, free from gluten and free from refined sugar, but full on flavor. People who know me from TV or from social media know that like I do not do food that isn't delicious. I really need it to make an impact and be memorable. And I, I had a really hard time finding another reset program or clean eating program that really satisfied those very demanding taste buds of mine. So it took me the better part of five years to write this book. I really put it to the test. And the five and two rule that you mentioned is really, so five days a week when I'm following this reset and it can, this reset, you can do it for a week. If you're like coming off the holidays, you just want a week of reset. Um, if you feel like you've you know grown dependencies on sugar, on things, on carbs, et cetera, then you just want a, simple carbs. I mean, things that, you know, loaded with sugar, et cetera, um, that there, this is something you can rely on for the week. It's something I've done for months on end after, after having babies and things where it was a bigger shift I wanted to make. Um, but in any case, five days a week, you're not you're avoiding gluten and you're avoiding refined sugar. And that's, you know, leaving you a tremendous abundance of foods to play with. And you'll see in the recipes here, I cover all elements of the day, breakfast, lunch and dinner, of course, but also brunches and snacks and even desserts. I really want to eat your heart out to treat the, the whole human and to give you assets to use right. throughout your day. And then two days a week off when I eat whatever I want is really On critical because I've, I've learned through so many parts of my life that your mind is your biggest ally or your biggest foe and having those days that you can look forward to of like, I don't have to, I don't have to rule anything out. I can go to my birthday party or my friend's dinner or whatever's going on that you were looking forward to and, and continue to live your life in a really sustainable way. Well, it sounds good. There are a lot of wonderful recipes and it's very easy plan to follow. I mean, I was already copying down miso glaze, sea bass, and shrimp in a lettuce wrap. There are a lot of yummy things. 
And I congratulate you on everything. And your family's off to a lot of new adventures. Your dad is running for political office. Everyone is doing their thing. And it's an exciting time in the Oz family. Look forward to talking to you again. Congratulations. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome everyone to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I love reading thrillers. Love it. It's, it's like the biggest release. And I finished a new one by one of the top thriller writers in the world, Harlan Coven. He not only writes all these incredible books, but they end up in movies, on TV, they're streamed, they're everywhere. And we've become very attached to some of his characters. And in his brand new book called The Match, we re-meet Wilde. Do you remember that, guys? That's the very attractive man who apparently, as a little kid, five, six, seven, somewhere around there, was abandoned by his parents in the Ramapo Mountains in New Jersey. And when he's found, the child doesn't really know anything much about his past or certainly anything about his parents. But he does something which millions of Americans do. He goes on one of those sites that tell you about your DNA and a match on this Antristy database changes his life. And it may be possible, he finds, to be able now at this stage to track down his father, maybe his descendants, his cousins, his parents, and of course, we end up with everything you can imagine, conspiracy, fear. It's a wonderful, fast read book. So you have so many. Where did this latest come from? Have you ever done the DNA thing? I have done the DNA test, both only um, for research purposes uh, for this book. But yeah, the whole idea was, as you say, so imagine if you know you find this kid in the woods. He swears he's always lived in the woods. He's five or six years old, doesn't remember parents, broke into cabins to feed himself. And some 35 years later, he still doesn't know how he ended up in the woods. And right on page one, after taking a DNA test, the match matches, um, he's standing across the street from his biological father. So we're getting right into the tale. This is... Uh, the match is his origin story, right? If it was a Batman, this is where we learned Batman's parents were murdered. Right. This is how this is sort of how Wild became Wild. So the match is the origin story, if you will. Right, and he's so well adjusted, Harlan. That's the you know part. Dump a kid in the woods and pick him up later. 
they're usually not like this character who, despite everything, is pretty solid inside. Well, he has, Warhol has a lot of trouble connecting to people. He lives for the most part in this eco capsule, which is a really cool thing uh, in the woods. He doesn't really connect well with people. And as the book goes on, he really does start to shed some of those inhibitions and starts to really form ties um, with those around them. But the other things I wanted to do, Joan, and I think you probably picked up on it, was it, it takes place very much in the modern day. So I was dealing with some of the darker side of reality TV, of, of online course. trolling, online bullying. Bachelor um, shows, dating things. shows. Yes, exactly. Um, no, it would be interesting for him to go through those worlds. Here's this sort of guy living in the woods going through these worlds to be able to find the answer of who he is and how he ended up abandoned in those woods. Right, and to track the other side of him with a sort of a family he's adopted over the years. But, you know, you too are an amazing character. You're still in college when you say, I'm going to be a writer. Now, you know, that's like me when I was a kid saying, I'm going to be an actor. The reality is so far from putting the statement out there. But a couple of years after you got out, you actually were a writer, quote unquote, and did get published. Do you remember when you think back how that really happened? I remember everything. I mean, you know, I've been I've had an interesting career in it was not overnight success. My first New York Times bestseller was my 10th novel, Tell No One. It was the first time I hit the bestseller list was my 10th novel. So it was a interesting process. But, you know, my, my goals were always just to look a little bit ahead. Oh, I just want to have a novel published. Oh, wouldn't it be cool to have two novels published to show it wasn't a fluke? Oh, wouldn't it be great if I could just kind of scratch out a living? Oh, wouldn't it be great if one day I hit a bestseller list? Oh, wouldn't it be great if one day it hit number one? You know, all those sort of things were more of a gradual process today. I don't want to be this one of these um, whining about people of today, but everybody thinks that their first book should be a, a huge bestseller. Instant. Um, yeah, but I'm yeah, curious. It's, it's different. Yeah. If you were an actor, we might have met you um, in the wine business or as a waiter or something. So what did exactly. you do during those years from graduation to publishing a real book? And as you point out, it was years before you had a bestseller. Uh, well, for eight years, I was in the travel business, uh, a family business in travel. I was also um, smart enough to marry a pediatrician. My uh -huh. wife is a doctor. Uh, and so when I left that business, um, after eight years, and we sat down and we agreed, let's give it a try. Let's give this writing thing a try. I also was more the stay-at-home parent. I know a lot of people will hear, um, oh, the dad was the stay-at-home parent, but not really, or, oh, they share responsibilities, but it always seems to fall on the woman. Um, I would say my wife and I were about as evenly divided doing the household chores and the children's stuff um, as you could be. I was the one who was mostly at home, did most of the driving. She likes to cook. So it was, a, it was sort of a good mix it, that way It worked. Well. And then yeah. after you hit a bestseller and had that, pressure which a lot of writer friends have to you got to duplicate this did your life change a lot or did you still maintain the same regimen well you know you, there's no question that success messes with your head um 
but I, you know, but again, I was 39 years old and already had when my fourth kid was born. The first day I hit the bestseller list, so it wasn't like I could start partying with Leo, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like when I read these actors, when I read these, you know, when I you know, meet or read about these actors or rock stars who all of a sudden gain fame in their 20s and don't have those those sort of guardrails, it, it, it surprises me they even survive. Nonetheless, don't do even dumber things than what. Um, we read about it. So my life was pretty much the same. Um, and, you know, it was the pressure. There's actually, in, in some ways, there was less pressure. Uh, the real pressure, of course, is trying to hope not your next book even gets published or that you can maybe scratch out a living. The pressure today um, is, oh, and all the pressure has always for me been self-induced. You're a reader. You're, gonna, you're going to a bookstore. You're going to buy the match. I take, you know, great responsibility. That's a real honor. There's thousands of books you could choose from. And, I, you know, I don't want to disappoint the reader. I want the match to be your favorite read of mine. I want that last, that ending of the match to not only surprise you, but really kind of move you and, and, and wreck you a little bit. And if I'm not doing that, I'm disappointed in myself. So I'm always trying my best to, to do the best work that I can each time out. Right. And the question that I get from listeners all the time is, all right, I'm writing a book or I've written a book, whether it's I'm a lawyer and want to share my story or it's a murder or a cookbook. How do you do this? So here you were married and probably had a kid before the first book came out. How did you get yourself published? You weren't connected. You were in an unrelated business. Well, my first two books actually came out before I had any of the kids, but they were with a very small press. Um, I actually just sent it in um, and asked for an they opinion and they ended up publishing it. But it was, I mean, it was a, an advance of, I think, $2,000. It was a, it was a, it was a beautiful hardcover edition, but it was not um, anywhere but libraries and, and, a, and a few bookstores. Was it a thriller? Um, so then a, yeah, oh yeah, it was a thriller. It was called Play Dead and then Miracle mm -hmm. Cure. Those were my first two books. Um, and then I moved into the Myron Bolitar series, which was a paperback original series, but with a, a major publishing house, Phantom Double Day Dell, and slowly moved up the ladder from that. Right. That was your basketball player or former basketball player yes. who's now an agent. Yes. yes, that's Myron. Yes. And then that was it. Then you started. It started, and it was growing slowly. I was doing just fine. And then I wrote a book called Tell No One. Uh, it came out in 2001, and that book changed my life overnight. Um, that was the first New York Times bestseller, um, and all of a sudden my career went from zero to 60. That's when you become the quote-unquote uh, overnight success right. after nine other books. Um, that book just took off, and then since then each book has – uh, been Taking a bestseller, <laughs> yeah. Each book has but, been as, as a bestseller. This is my thirty-fifth book, believe it uh, or not. You're unreal. And when this, when the book really took off, and the other books did okay, but they weren't, you know, knocking the town down. What did you think that this book was better than the others? Was special? What in it sort of made the public say, "Oh my gosh, I can't stop reading this." Well, tell no one had a number one had a great hook. Number two, the books before it, as you just mentioned, Myron Bolotar was a sports agent. So people had the, you know, when you get when you're marketing, people have the idea that, oh, sports book, I have no interest in reading a sports book. 
well, now they've all found it and realized they're not sports books at all. But that back then it was a harder marketing tool. But Tell No One had a great hook. When they made the movie in France, the poster read, um, eight years ago, Dr. Beck's wife was murdered. Today he got an email from her. Um, so that, you know, that was, that's a great hook, the idea that this man whose wife was murdered, and then eight years later, he sees her on a webcam alive. Mm. That's compelling. It's a lot to say, and you're buying the book. And so I don't know if there's a better book or not, but I think that would, people were locking into that. No, there was no thing people thinking, oh, it's going to be sports. So all of those things, I think, everything has to work right, and you have to have a lot of luck, too. Um, that just happened with Tell No One. And you have to also understand marketing. But then, as the world kept changing, you ended up signing a deal with Netflix. Now, that doesn't happen often to a lot of writers. Yeah, I made a couple of shows overseas and that Netflix had, had picked up on and liked. And we were going to do one show together. Um, and then somebody came up with the idea of, well, we really want material for our, our you know, Netflix films in all the countries. They're in 190 countries. And they like to have originals. Mm. People who have Netflix know this. They've seen shows, Netflix Spain, Netflix Germany, Netflix France. Um, and I, my books sell actually better overseas than they, they do here in the U.S., relatively speaking. And so they made an overall deal so that we could do a bunch of different shows in various countries. And it's been really, really fun. Um, and their reach is so, you know, so vast uh, that it's it's just been a great uh, a great experience and a great relationship. So at this point, Harlan, with the match out, do you feel pressure to come up with another book, or do you have enough on your plate with streaming, with pilots, with television, with everything that you've got going on to just do what you're doing? Or do you want more? Well, the, the novels I always consider my day job, right? Mm -hmm. So every this is every third week in March or so for the last ten or fifteen years, I've released a book. Then, and I I plan on continuing that. So the match, of course, is, is a new one, and I'm writing. i I'm already you know 150 pages into the into the next one. Um, it's you know writing a novel is a completely you're a dictator. It's a completely solitary practice. It's just you. Um, and TV is extraordinarily collaborative. It's the direct opposite creatively. So I've really enjoyed being able to do both. I hope I'm able to continue to do both. But if one has to give, I'll be writing the books. Um, that's, that, that, that usually is my priority. Right. And Wild, your character, I, I was sure when I finished him that I was going to meet him again that there was going to be a series or something so we know what happened to him. Right. The Boy from the Woods, which is the first book, if you will, of Wild. Yeah. I don't tell you how he ended up in the woods. We just know his story that he ended up in the woods. And it's a mystery where he's trying to find a missing teenager. And it goes really explodes almost all through the world up into presidential politics and everything like that. But I never answer the question at the end of that book. Of, well, how did he end up in the woods? So this, again, is like his origin story. It's like you're reading one of those comic books and, you know, you watch Batman solve crimes and now you find out Batman's parents were murdered and that's how he became the Batman. Batman. So you can read them in either order. You can read Boy from the Woods first or The Match first. Um, but, yeah, this is – now you know how he ended up abandoned in the woods and what happened to his parents and his family and, and all of that. 
But of course, now we want to know that we have new information, how this really impacts in the long run, his life and his love life, his relationships. But a great job. Now, are your kids involved in writing at all? I have one of, of the four. One is involved in writing. One is a very talented TV writer. Um, she's written for me on Stay Close and The Stranger, which people may have seen on Netflix. Uh-huh. Most of the funny lines and most of the teenage uh-huh. stories <laughs> on those two TV show are hers. She brings a great young voice um, to the team, which uh, my partner uh, who I've been working with in those British series really felt we needed and brought Charlotte in. Um, so, she, you know, Charlotte's a, a big part of that. She also wrote uh, the pilot episode of a of a show um, that I'm hopefully going to be filming in New Jersey. Well, not hopefully, we're going to be filming in New Jersey for Amazon Prime based on my young adult Mickey Bolitar series um, yeah. soon. So, yeah, she's quite active. The other ones, no. One is going to be working at NASA in flight control. Um, one is uh, still at Brown University. Um, and one is working in New York for a consulting firm. So they're kind of all over the place. Right. And the one from Brown, I have two kids who came out of Brown. Very creative, you know, artistic yeah. kids. This is what I want to do. I'm going to do it. She's so more science oriented. I don't even understand. She told me what her, her major is something called computational biology. I still don't understand good. what exactly that is. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> No, it's great. And they have a great pre-med too. So it's all good. And you have a discipline. Was that always part of your DNA? Uh, No, in fact, I wouldn't say I'm disciplined about really much else. Just just my writing. I have to get it done. And I'm not disciplined in the sense that I go days and days without writing much. And then I really, I'm a streak writer. Um, I think about it. I'm obsessed with it. Um, It's maybe even a little bit of an addiction and my life's not really in balance if I'm not writing well. But I'm not disciplined in the sense like there's a lot of writers who will say, okay, I get up at 6, 6.30, I'm at my laptop or my computer. I finish at, you know, have lunch at noon. I'm not that kind of um, disciplined. I'm just one who really wants to do it and get the work done. And I keep changing up how I do it as long as I can, as long as it may, may, helps me produce pages, it's good. If it doesn't help me produce pages, it's bad. I know. Do you take notes or it's a free form? I do everything. Uh, Again, anything that makes me work. Sometimes I do a lot by hand. Um, I I think there's something very freeing and childlike about pen to paper. So I I recommend that. And the other thing I Mm -hmm. like about pen and paper is I'll do say I'll I'll write by hand 10 pages and I'll put it on my on my laptop or word processor or computer, whatever. But that means my first draft is already my second draft. Um, it's making me do one more draft. And there's something also, when you delete on a computer, it's kind of gone from sight. When you cross out on a page, you can kind of still see, you can draw arrows. Um, so for me, I like doing those first parts and the thinking on paper with a pen. Yeah, but that makes sense. The, I, I do, even if for interviews and notes and everything, a yellow pad and a pen, it just feels more intimate. It's something that I can deal with. But do you treat yourself to time off? Like the match, did you give yourself a break? Because I know you're already started on the next one. I'm not good with breaks, in the full breaks, because I don't really really consider what I do that hard, that much, not really 
um, exhausting or time-consuming work. Uh, I'm out of sorts when I'm not writing. So life is about balance, right? So you're balancing with your partner, balancing relationship with your family, balancing your health, your eating, your exercise, all those things. Friends, if I'm not writing well, the rest of my life kind of gets out of balance. So even on vacation, so-called, I like to wake up and jot some notes or thoughts down. I don't like to take my, let my brain fully off. I think it's why I'm not a stressed kind of person. I get like, but I don't like doing the sort of meditations where they say clear your mind. Nothing mm-hmm. stresses me more than telling me to clear my mind. I like my <laughs> mind sort of actively working and looking for new stories and and asking what if and that sort of a thing. Well, your mind sounds good to me, and <laughs> I couldn't put down the match, and you won't be able to either. This is Harlan Coleman's brand new book. It's in all your bookstores. Continued success. Enjoy the family. And we'll talk again. Thanks, Joan. Appreciate it. Anytime. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Thank you so much for sharing this hour. The clock doesn't lie. It says three o'clock straight ahead. So stop talking and make room for someone else. I hope you've enjoyed the show and I'm wishing all of you happy Passover, happy Easter. I hope for all of you, good health, goodwill, good times, enjoying family, friends, and let's collectively Pray for better times straight ahead, for a more peaceful New York City under control, because even though many people live in and around the city, the city is the heartbeat, and so many people work here, go to restaurants here, go to theater here, many children go to school here, so it's all one. I consider all of it one community. And whether you live in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Long Island, we're all part of the same. So wishing you the happiest of happy times ahead. Enjoy the rest of the day. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC Radio.